0: For those of you who were not here last Sunday night, we're doing a two part series. It's a worldview mini series. Worldview. We weren't using this word in 1959. I don't recall this word really coming into vogue in, in talking in Christian circles until maybe about the last uh, 30 years or so. But it's, I think, a very useful word to help us to focus in upon the way in which we, as Christians, can understand how the various truth claims are made in this world and in our own nation. My, has our culture has changed so dramatically. It is not the culture I grew up in in the 1940s and 50s. I can tell you that, and dramatically so. So what I wish to do for two Sunday nights, tonight being the second part, is to walk you through eight presentation, eight propositions, statements, which would summarize a theistic worldview, theism. I am using, as I indicated, I'm using uh, James Sire's book, The Universe Next Door. I'm using a portion of it. It gives the outline, I'm following the outline, it gives me the necessary talking points for this um, study. Uh, And while I'm on this track of thought with books, I want to recommend this to you. What, um, please don't take this as any kind of, uh, of an insult, I don't mean it that way, but I would love to have these seats filled with all the teenagers in our church, every one of them, but since I have the youth pastor with us tonight, he'll know what to do. Uh, that this is, and I'm going to come to this point at the conclusion tonight what our responsibilities are in view of what I'm saying, what I said last week, and what I say tonight about identifying a Christian worldview or theism. Uh, just a couple of things about some books, some other materials. Um, this book, of course, is a basic worldview catalog. This book may even be revised. Now, I have the 97 edition, but this is the third edition. Uh, it's, it's an excellent book for this study. And I think that it probably ought to be required study for any student who will plan to go off for higher education, any young person, especially those who are, who are going off to colleges and universities. It ought to be, if there were a way to require it here, We ought to do that, and this would be an excellent book to do so with. Uh, This book is a bit, um, a little out of date, uh, that this book is um, called Life Views, Understanding the Ideas that Shape Society Today, by R.C. Sproul. Crucial Questions Book, How to Bring Your Faith into the World. And R.C. Sproul writes very clearly, he is uh, he is a scholar par excellence and he has uh, was land on the here's the first section is called world views and the importance of cultural awareness secularism ignoring the eternal pessimistic existentialism sentimental humanism pragmatism positivism pluralism and relativism hedonism and then there is a part two, the Christian's role in society. It's a little out of date in the sense that some of the references to books and music and that kind of thing—you know—you read it and say, "Whoa, that was ancient history, 1980s." <laughs> but I recommend it. It's, it's very helpful if you want to pursue this line of thought. Uh, another. Now, this is a, a different kind of book, not a Christian. This is by Dennis Prager. This is—he is, uh, he is a, an Orthodox Jew, and a practicing Jew. I don't know how. Well, I mean, he—he—he he, he follows Judaism, and it's not just a, a racial uh, identification that uh, he tries to practice. A lot of the—he has, has some excellent work on the Old Testament, as far as. The Jewish perspective without Christ in the New Covenant can take you, but he does have some work on the Ten Commandments. He knows his Old Testament. He knows Hebrew. He actually knows about five or six languages. He is um, um, gifted in music. He leads or conducts orchestras. Um, he is um, has written this book called Still the Best Hope: Why the World Needs American Values for, to Triumph. Now that may put you off a bit. Say, America? Does the world really need America? Well, in our Christian, our Christian worldview, from that standpoint, we say, well, the world, the, the world's best hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're agreed on that. We're not saying that America is the world's best hope, but within the context in which he's using this, uh, it's a he's, he presents the fact that the values that we have. In the United States of America, with all our flaws, with all our with our weaknesses, what nation besides America would you like to be the strongest, the greatest power in the world today? Have you got a candidate? Anybody want will vote for Russia, China. Anybody? Uh, Europe. Uh, if you begin to think this thing through, you can see that there's very important point to be made. And I recommend this book to you. It's, um, it's, he, he has great moral clarity. You're not going to see the gospel here. He travels about with evangelical speakers and speaks to pastors. He's a very unusual person. I mean, he's <laughs> pastors' conferences and he knows the gospel. He's been around Christians and traveled with some, um, well, enough of all that, but you can find out this, uh, it's a, it's a good read. And uh, it will really help you understand some of the conflict that we're experiencing in our culture today. Now, I have a few issues I want to present to you. I'm going to test your worldview responses. You don't need to answer. You can answer in your mind. But I just plucked these off of the, the Internet this week, one day, and I thought they might tease you a little bit with how would you evaluate these issues? How would you sort them out? What would be your conclusions? Uh, number one on this, rise of young Western Islamists result of disillusionment with secular world views. Hmm, think about that one a bit. There, th- these are titles of articles, by the way, They go on to pursue this. Chaplain punished for faith in suicide prevention class. Walking on eggshells, college president, sorry for saying, all lives matter. Quote, unquote, ready for sex at 13. Parents, irate high school teaching gender-picking early sex. Columbia Law School recently allowed students to postpone final exams if they felt they had experienced emotional trauma. It's the context of Ferguson and New York City, those two police episodes there. University of Hawaii recently prohibited students from handing out the U.S. Constitution in most areas of campus and only reversed course after being sued in court. How could you evaluate those in a conversation? Oh, and this would only be the tip of the, of the iceberg as to all of the cultural issues, I haven't even touched on the things that, uh, well, further in politics and religion, in the church, and and uh, in sports, and in movies, and entertainment, where, where everybody lives, where everybody lives, and what they talk about. I wish to go back tonight to uh, our fourth of the, if you have the handout, you have the first uh, three propositions, you have those, and probably four, with the blanks filled in so I won't need to repeat those. But I want to pick up with this fourth one and carry it a little further. You know what we're doing now. We're taking these, eight of these. Then This this would be true, as James Sire points out in his book, The Universe Next Door. And if you take any worldview, whether it's deism, existentialism, nihilism, pantheistic monism, New Age, uh, you name it, you would deal with these same categories of thought. Number four, human beings, as Christian theists, we believe, human beings can know both the world around them and God himself because God has built into them the capacity to do so and because he takes an active role in communicating with them. This is fundamental to theism. We could put it this way, and I quote, Knowledge is possible because there is something to be known and someone to know. God's own intelligence is thus the basis for human intelligence. Consider that. In theological terms, then, this initiative that God has taken in communicating with us is known as revelation. In Christian theology, we understand the communication of God through revelation to be in two distinct areas. I'd like to quiz you if you're game for it. You anybody want to guess what these two areas of revelation would be, which God has communicated with us. Absolutely, thank you. Looking at my notes here. By general revelation. What is general revelation? The universe. Looking about us, all around us. It is that creation. Creation and God's fingerprints are all over it everywhere. Romans 1 and 19 and 20. And we are told that... Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly, clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Classic text in the study of revelation and general revelation, that there is enough evidence in this creation to hold every human being accountable to God for all eternity. That's what's hanging in the balance. All right, then what's the other kind of revelation? Yeah, I think I heard special revelation. And special revelation is that work of God in taking Scripture, revealed truth, and communicating through what we say as the scriptures. And the ultimate special revelation, I'm not going to take the time to work through all that's involved, and in, we honor that truth here at Baraka. We seek to by giving attention to God's Word. It's in the Sunday school classes, it's in Awana, it's in, in the preaching service on Sunday mornings. Um, we do that on Sunday nights. Though this is a topical study, this is really out of the norm for what we do around here. And, but this, we give honor to the fact that God has revealed himself to the scriptures, and we want to know the scriptures. But the ultimate special revelation would be Jesus Christ. All right, you know, you understand this and the importance of this. And I think that what is appropriate here would be to, for me to read, John 1, 1 through 4, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So everything that we need to know about God is found in Jesus Christ himself. God has fully revealed himself in the Son. I have, um, I'm going to delete something. I I don't think I put this in your notes. I'm not sure about the way New Age or what is sometimes known as integral spirituality, which has been a fad in worldview thinking for about 40 years now, that the core experience of the New Age, I'll say this much, of New Age or integral spirituality as it's called, The reason I use that word, integral spirituality, Ed Sherwin and I were talking about this just recently, that the new age, or excuse me, well, the new age is an older term for this integral spirituality, but that we hear that our country is becoming more anti-God, more idolatrous, if you will, and more atheistic. There's an element of truth there, but... Peter Jones, in his works on Gnosticism and New Age uh, thinking, he makes the point that we're really moving at a rapid speed to in a quest for more spirituality, more of a look for meaning through looking into oneself to find that meaning. So this is the way it's put in New Age and Integral Spirituality. And I'm taking this from James Sire's book. He says, The core experience of the New Age, or in the words of Peter Jones, Integral Spirituality, is cosmic consciousness in which the ordinary categories of space, time, and morality tend to disappear. So anything the self sees, perceives, conceives, imagines, or believes It exists because the self is in charge of everything that is. This is all over the place. And uh, PBS has a major uh, participant in this process, and you can get all kinds of gurus coming, you know, and they're trying to raise their money for the coming year in the PBS, uh, whether it's Georgia Public Television or... NPR uh, nationally, National Public Radio, that how you have this parade of these gurus who will come and present some new mind, some new thinking about the infinite mind or what have you. But that should help you to understand what's going on and why this is a critical issue to understand. I want to move to number five so we can catch up. Um, That was up there. All right, number five. Human beings were created good. But through the fall, the image of God became defaced, though not ruined, as not to be capable of restoration. Through the work of Christ, God redeemed man and began the process of restoring man to goodness, even though any given man may choose to reject that redemption. Uh, let's, Let's unpack this for just a bit. First of all, let's take this is human goodness? It consists in being what God wanted people to be when God created Adam and Eve. He wanted them to be the exquisite portrayal of goodness. And they were in the garden, Adam and Eve. Beings made in the image of God and acting that nature in their daily life. Not that complicated. Adam and Eve had it laid out before them beautifully, created with the capacity for self-determination. We can only, imagination can only carry us to what would the world have been like if Adam and Eve had not fallen. And for God had put them in this pristine, absolutely perfect environment with with intelligence, shared intelligence and gene pool that was just phenomenal. And what could have, what might have been? Well, the fall changed everything. Human beings have chosen to act as if they had an existence independent from God. This was Satan's ploy. You know it well, as God said. God has something. He has a horizon to which you could go, but he doesn't want you to go there because, you know, he is limiting you and he doesn't have your best interest at heart. So the image of man then, because of this disobedience to God, this quest for an independent existence from God, the image of God in man became defaced, marred, ruined. Let me think, walk you through ways in which it has been. This is not a thorough uh, uh, examination of this, but let's just walk through some of the ways what happened. First of all, personality. We lost When Adam and Eve fell, this happened to all of their, all of their progeny. We lost our capacity to know ourselves accurately and to determine our course of action freely in response to our intelligence. When it comes to self-transcendence, being able to look up and beyond ourselves, we, it was impaired by the alienation that we experienced in relation to God. Humanity became more of a servant to nature than to God. This is Romans 1. Human intelligence, what happened? It Became impaired. Paul refers to this kind of thing in other places, but many places. But in Ephesians 4.18, he refers to the mind being darkened. And this darkened condition of the mind means that uh, morally, we became less able to discern good and evil. Socially, we began to exploit other people. Creatively, our imagination became separated from reality. Imagination became illusion. Artists created gods in their own image led humanity further and further from its origin. Read Psalm 115, look at uh, Isaiah in chapter 44, and you can see Scripture uh, holds up for ridicule the uh, idolatrous um, artistry of man, his willingness to take his art abilities in art and, do, and to create those things that are going to be totally um, uh, of depravity and totally lead him away from God. Human beings have become alienated from God. They've become alienated from God, from others, from nature and themselves. Now, in Christian theism, you see the word in this statement with regard to restoration. God has provided a way back. And the way back is, what is our role in order to get back to the place where God intended for us to be? to repent and believe to believe the gospel to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to acknowledge our sinfulness to accept God's provision to follow Christ so what then happens redemption redemption humanity is on the uh, experiences a restoration of this defaced image of God this is the purpose in God's redemption of us is that we're in the process of being remade Paul works with this in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4. There is substantial healing then in every area. What we just said about our fallenness in personality and self-transcendence and intelligence and morality and social capacity and creativity, that all of that becomes we restored in our relationships, in our thought processes, and our ability to think discerningly. So when the experience then comes to be one of a glorified humanity, humanity totally healed and at peace with God. That's where Christianity therefore takes on the unique feature of hope. No system of thought and no worldview offers what Christianity does because none, no system of thinking, of theology if you will, has the, has the impact of hope like Christianity does. Never forget this. Now, the world would like to tamp us down and shut us up and keep us isolated. And if, we can't, if he can't isolate us, he would like, by intimidation, to start isolating ourselves within walls, in boxes. But we have the hope that's in Jesus Christ and a redeemed humanity. James Sire puts it this way in his book. In short, in theism, human beings are seen as significant because they are essentially godlike, and though fallen, can be restored to original dignity. Number six. Well, I did have, excuse me, I did have that word up there. My fault. I should have. All right, let's go to number six. I think I'll put. Number six. For each person, death is either the gate of life with God, gate to life with God, and His people, or the gate to eternal separation from the only thing that will ultimately fulfill man's aspirations. Let's think briefly, and we are really thinking briefly here, with regard to how the subject of death fits into Christian theism. But in doing so, I want to momentarily contrast it with naturalism. The worldview that's captured academia, Hollywood, um, the arts, um, entertainment. Naturalism says death is extinction of personality and individuality. In other words... I would say we become more like just plain roadkill. Perhaps the hardest proposition, this is perhaps the hardest proposition of naturalism for people to accept. Namely that there is, and this is Sire's words, there is no credible evidence that life survives the death of the body. No fire, here's a quote I'm quoting here from Bertrand Russell. No fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. Now, you can begin, you, can, you know the tension here in our society as a Christian with, when I would assume everyone here tonight, you function with a Christian world and life, you. You're a theist. You understand death. You understand the significance of death. We're going to walk through it a little bit more in a moment. But can you not see then how with naturalism, with the, with the sealing off of God from our thoughts, from our way of thinking through reality, you can see why we are the unwillingness to talk about death. Or when we do talk about death, we want to glamorize it and talk about death with dignity, namely suicide. I think you saw that recent episode—the young girl who was, it looked like the the cover of some modeling magazine, and she had cancer, terminal cancer, and she was planning her suicide. And this was splashed about through the media as and presented as some, at least I, in my impression, that, that hey, folks, get on board. This is the future. And when you're diagnosed with terminal whatever, that this should be an open door. This should be an opportunity. But death with dignity, suicide, abortion, so what? Euthanasia, why not? Mercy killing, these kinds of things. But let's think for just a moment about theism. This is where we are. What happens when a person dies? There are questions. Do I disappear? Do I become uh, personally extinct? I'm just, this was it, I'm gone. Do I hibernate and return in a different form, like as in reincarnation? Which interestingly is caught on. I've watched this uh, aspect of Eastern religion really catch on and come in um, I mean, you know, it's really sinking deep into the culture when Willie Nelson sings some of one of his songs. I've forgotten which one it is about reincarnation and karma. So it's caught on, and it's faddish. But it's—I don't mean by faddish that it's not held on to, But here we are, hold, we're buying into the cyclical view of history. We'll it's later cyclical view of history out of the East where things just go in this endless circle till we reach ultimately freedom from being whoever we are to merging with the great nothingness, a great empty bubble on the sea of eternity and we become nothing, we're extinct. Well, reincarnation, is that what happens? Do I continue in a transformed existence in heaven or hell? Christian theism teaches the last. There is a transformed existence in either hell or heaven. We can either enter into existence with God and his people in a glorified state. Is that your hope, by the way? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt? May I press you on this for a moment? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if your heart stopped beating, you drop over dead on this floor that to be absent in the body is to be present with Jesus Christ. God expects us as Christians to know that. And the Christian who waffles on that, my opinion is, they need to re-examine their theology. You can know that. But what's the other? What's the alternative? Or people enter into an existence forever separated from God. James Sire says it this way, holding their uniqueness in awful loneliness apart from precisely that which would fulfill them. In other words, living with loneliness and hopelessness for all eternity. Another quote. This is from G.K. Chesterton, that greatest Britisher of a generation or two gone by. He says, hell is a monument to human freedom, and we might add human dignity. Hell is a tribute to the freedom he, God, gave each of us and chose whom we would serve, to choose whom we would serve. It is a recognition that our decisions have a significance that extends far down into the reaches of foreverness. This is where the natural, naturalist worldview stands in stark contrast to the Christian theistic worldview, that there is an eternity. I will tell you, pausing here for a moment, when you really consider this, my Christian friend, the implications of, foreverness, of the foreverness of lostness, um, I personally find it so mentally, solically, spiritually, so difficult to think about for very long, forever, separated from God in eternal pain and suffering, with all that that implies. Let's go to the seventh. <clears throat> Ethics is transcendent and is based on the character of God as good, holy, and loving, we would say. God is the source of... God is the source of the moral world as well as the physical world. So being made in God's image has its implications. We are essentially moral beings, and we can't do anything about it. <laughs> We're just that way. Now, there is a complication because as theists, as Christian world viewers, that because of the fall what do we have? A, I would refer to this as a broken moral compass. Not useless, not obliterated. There is still something of that image of God, marred, distorted, ruined. But we can't get rid of that <coughs> sense that some things are right or natural and others are not. For example, Sire presents this, and I let's... I'm going to take his example as a good one. The issue of homosexuality. There was a time I, within my lifetime, um, certainly, well, not that far back. You can, Some of you can remember this, where homosexuality by and large was considered by most in society to be immoral. Granny, where are we now? But now it is no longer considered by many if we're to believe the polls and if we're we're to believe the um, current thinking that more, I'll put it this way, more and more of our population, certainly in America, are accepting of and and give approval to homosexuality in one form or another. How do they do so? They don't do it on the basis of immorality versus morality, but in a shifting of moral categories. It's what you want to put over into the moral category. So the argument then is, if you're gay, that's good, that's moral, that's right. And so where have Christians been put on this issue? You, if you believe that it is immoral, then you would be out of step with what morality is, enlightenment and progressive thinking. You are therefore a threat to a healthy, uh, to human beings, their freedom, their dignity, and so forth. So you see it's a switching of moral categories. Now, we could do this with other sins. I'm not picking on this one because it's somehow at the top of the triangle of worse sins. But it does present, an, I think, a vivid example of how... Um, moral category switch. But, as Sire points out, that homosexuals do not usually condone incest. So, there are moral categories that exist here. Everyone lives in a moral universe. And that's where the battle is fought today. Now, what does theism teach with regard to the moral categories? Theism teaches that not only is there a moral universe, but there is an absolute standard by which all moral judgments are measured. There's a standard of right and wrong, and people who want to know it can know it. And the fullest embodiment, the fullest embodiment of the good is Jesus Christ, the complete man, the perfect man, the second Adam. And that he is the one to whom we look as that perfect standard of righteousness, because he was Genuinely human, God, man, human. Now, what does naturalism say about the ethics? I'm, I'll, I'll be brief here. I have, well, yeah, okay. The, I have a short. I have a sentence here, but I'm going to make it into a little longer paragraph. <clears throat> what is naturalism? A worldview that pushes God out of the picture and a worldview that is increasingly capturing the thinking and the values of our own society. What does it say with regard to ethics? How do you build ethics? How do you build an ethical system? Human beings do it in relation to themselves. Ethical considerations in naturalism in the early days used to be... See, there has really been a shift, and I'll tell you who discusses this excellently in Sproul in his book on humanism where he traces the history of how humanism, as you look going all the way back to classical Greek times, Socrates and Plato, and as you track it on down through history, how you see it becoming, it kind of mutates. And even as recently as the early 19th, or the early 20th century to some extent, you could see naturalism embodied in what we know liberalism, you could see it sharing a lot of Christian ideals. And Christianity was kind of taught, was tolerated because progressives, as they like to speak of themselves now, liberals, saw that Christianity, as far as it would go in teaching goodness and love and morality, that there was some, okay, we share some progressives with you, can we share some... Um, uh, some of the same vision for the future. But things have changed. I don't need to labor this one. Things have changed even rapidly and rapidly in the last 30 years where liberalism slash naturalism has become more hostile, more anti-Christian. And Ethical standards are viewed, then, as being cap- we're capable of constructing them independently of and by our own reason apart from anything Christian. Just take the ways in which things have changed, without elaborating on, in, in liberalism, in naturalism, premarital, extramarital sex, euthanasia, abortion, homosexuality, gay marriage. As has been said, without a belief in God, anything is possible. And this is being demonstrated in our present cultural decline. That's what's happening, folks. I have a little book here that, uh, human manifest Humanist Manifesto's 1 and 2. So if you want it straight from the horse's mouth, these are the guys. These are the ones who have laid it out in the early 1900s, and then more recently this goes up to about 1973. This is the Humanist Manifesto. So we're going to get in your face here, you Christian theist. Here, listen. We humanists, naturalists, we affirm the moral values. That excuse me, we affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics is autonomous and situational, needing no theological or ideological sanction. Ethics stems from human. Human need and interest. And it goes on to further elaborate on this point. But so there is, uh, the gloves are off. There is no, it is not disguised. But as Sire points out in his book, and others have as well, how in the world do you get from the ought? Then How do you get, excuse me, how does ought derive from is? If this is the way we are, how can you make that into an alt, namely moral standards, moral persuasion? And, you know, with with the moral clarity that an, um, a non-Christian Jew can present in here and the way in which he can dismantle, show the distinction between good and evil, and he has much to say about this in his uh, talks, that what we have before us, with our, our conflict with our culture, is that we are at war with evil. We are at war with evil. Have you noticed that liberals are very uncomfortable in talking about in those moral categories? They don't really don't have these moral categories, liberalism. And I have to put this caveat here. This is not to say that some liberals and naturalists are not, that many are not good people who do good things. That's beside the point. We're talking about a system. A stream of thought, a worldview. And that, but how embarrassed the uh, naturalist, humanist, and in in many cases liberals, that the word evil, the words evil and good, are just, they're not in the vocabulary. All right, we can give examples, but let's keep going. Let's go to number eight, and we need to bring this to a conclusion. Number eight, the eighth truth proposition within theism is that history is linear, a meaningful sequence of events leading to the fulfillment of God's purposes for man. Now, just for a moment, if you can take it a little bit, naturalism, how does it look at history? Anybody want to offer a guess? How would naturalism look at history? Use your. Can you switch over and use an unsanctified imagination? <laughs> uh? Random. Yeah. What other synonyms can we say? Yeah. No, yeah. That, that we're just moving through a cycles. Yeah. And maybe using eastern, eastern um, uh, categories, uh, thought categories like reincarnation, karma. That kind of thing, Um, but naturalism, its history is a linear linear stream of events linked by cause and effect, but without an overarching purpose. So naturalism, or I'm going to bring in another word that fits here with secularism, history is just linked by cause and effect. There's no overarching purpose. So history really begins, history begins the origin of the human family in nature going back to primates or protozoa in the system of evolution. This is what, uh, here's an astronomer uh, from Columbia University said this, uh, Professor uh, uh, Lodowicz-Wolcher, that's the best I can do with his name, but here I'm quoting He said, the origin of what man is, man, the earth, the universe, is shrouded in a mystery we are no closer to solving than was the chronicler of Genesis. So therefore, what has come to fill the void in uh, naturalism's worldview what is the system to explain history, which is in every public school textbook in America? Evolution. It's the system that attempts to give some uh, meaning to, what hi- to history. And Richard Dawkins, the blind watchmaker, intentionally ruled out the possibility from the beginning that there could be any one who would create by design and create a universe with meaning determined by God. So according to naturalism, history is what we make it to be. Human events have only the meaning people give them when they choose them or when they look back upon them. What does theism say? What do we say about history? Tell me. Ampl- embellish it a little bit, amplify it a little bit. What's the Christian worldview say? What does theism say with regard to history? Just have at it. I'm not, it's not a trick question. Absolutely, we have a sovereign God who's in charge of everything. Therefore, as you can re- reverse what the—it's not reversible. It's not cyclical. It's not. And what's the big problem with the naturalist view of history? What's, the, what's, what's finally derived from a, a, a history where we're just shut in, linked by cause and effect with no purpose? So what do you end up with? <clears throat> yeah, well, meaninglessness. Meaninglessness. You remember that one quote that I read to you? <laughs> that How some are conjecturing that more in the West... More young people are being attracted to ISIS and Islamic terrorism. They're looking for some kind of meaning. So therefore, history then is the divine purpose of God in concrete form. How do we think? The drama of redemption. Israel, the church. Eastern religions, how do they think? History is an illusion. History is eternally cyclic, reincarnation. And then we have all of the imposters to meaningfulness in history, Marxism, socialism, varying kinds of utopianism. I want to conclude, and I'm going to do two things in conclusion. I'm going to uh, give to you. um, I want to give to you some challenges based upon what we've seen with this flyover of Christian theism, basics, and things you you already knew these things. But I want to mention three things, and I'm going to put a couple of real practical writers on them as to them what we should do. I say, how should we then live? How should we then be discerning? I want to mention these, and then I want to to give you a a story. The discernment to strive for an ever-growing understanding of God. I'm saying this is how we should then be discerning. I want my discernment to strive for an ever-growing understanding of God. Never let it cease. you think you have exhausted what you need to know about God? I hope not. <laughs> that God's, the knowledge of God, His ways, His thoughts, His words. Listen, folks, by the way, this is just a side road briefly. There is no substitute in your Bible study, in your scripture memory, in your theology classes, and in Christian, reading Christian literature, there's no substitute for just reading the Bible. I, I think reading the Bible through is in a year. Or if you want to do it in two years, okay. There's nothing in the Bible says you've got to read it through in a year. But that you read it. It's amazing what begins, you just read it, read it, read it. Read it. And see how God opens up before your mind's eye and what you see about him. All right, secondly, the discernment. How should we then be discerning? The discernment to allow creation to draw me to worship the creator. I'm concerned for our younger generation. Many who are growing up isolated from the creation. This is one of my real concerns about what technology is doing for our young people. Whether it's video games, it's, uh, it's smartphones, it's the internet, it's Instagram, it's Facebook, these things can have their function in place. Justin's going to give us—he's going to give us a Christian worldview of something on this on January the 4th in our combined Sunday school classes. But I'm concerned that we may be seeing a generation, and maybe the one before it, that what we're finding is many are growing up. With a less less than being awed by God, just from the standpoint of not being awed by His creation, that's kind of elemental, isn't it? Just be awed by His creation. I really think, in my own experience, I think that this really played a significant role in putting me in awe of God when I was a ch- when I was a young, a child. I lived outdoors. Indoors was punishment, <laughs> not to be in there. Of course, in the summertime in the south in those days, it was punishment. It was hot. But we were outdoors all day long. We were running through woods, playing in streams, just doing everything with, out in nature. It's where we lived. And joined the Boy Scouts, take it up a level. We did that. And I think in my own experience that, and, and I had this, I had a grandmother who was so keen on, in nature she, only, she didn't even have an elementary school education, went to about the sixth, seventh grade, but she read voraciously, and she was a keen observer in nature. And I'll never forget those walks with her through the woods when we were little children. Everything just, Pow! it's God, here, God, there, God, here, God, there. Look at this flower. Look at this tree. Look at that flying squirrel. Look at the birds. Look at the bird, the nest, the Everything. And I'm I'm concerned that we may be losing, are losing that awe of God because we're losing our contact with nature. This is not to minimize obviously the importance of special revelation, which should do this would do this to us. All right. Thirdly, how do we should we then be discerning the discernment to use my mind and personality and emotions to be filled with God's truth? I'm going to have to let that one just sit. I don't have time to unpack it. But the discernment to use my mind and personality and emotions to be filled with God's truth. And my challenge is to Baraka that I think our homes, we need to be constantly reminded and called on the dot for making our homes places where Christian world and life view is just. Powerfully presented and lived in our homes, you're all mostly adults here tonight, and that's why I said teasing uh, Wade about it. he's got the youth, but we represent as adults as parents and grandparents and teachers and so on here. we've got a, we have a, a tremendous responsibility. and you know what that is? That's the next generation. That's the young people that Gods given to him. He's given us responsibility. We've got work to do in our homes. We've got work to do in schools in preparation, as I said earlier, getting our young people ready if they go off to college. I would hope the day could come where we wouldn't lose any young people to the university systems in their their naturalistic worldview as they walk in there with their Christian worldview because they're going to be considered targets. They are. I'm not saying they don't go to university, but I will tell you, They have really become increasingly dangerous places, very dangerous places. And our church and what we do here. All right, I'm going to, I'm out of time, but I want to, I came on this this week. You're talking about these worldviews and you think, well, here's this, here's this Christian worldview, theism. It's glorious. It's wonderful. It's God's revelation. Everything makes sense. It just fits. Meaning is, you find meaning. There's hope in Christ. And you can look death right in the face and say, I am not afraid of you. Because absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. And I can live my life enjoying God's creation and savoring it and say, as I savor Christ. What about atheists? Are they hopeless? We feel sad. We should. I came across this story. This is in Christianity Today, the recent edition. They have testimonies that they've been putting at the end of their um, magazine each month. And this one is, what a story. My Own French Revolution How an Atheist Becomes a Christian Theologian. I'm going to have to summarize for you and read parts. He starts out by saying, If French atheists rarely become evangelical Christians, how much rarer? It is for one to become an evangelical Christian theologian. And then the question, question, so what happened? Here's the story. Talk about sovereign grace. An atheist, a Frenchman, young person, living for himself. He describes how he was was athletic, he was smart, and, you know, grew up outside of Paris and just the good life. The good life, as it's defined, and he was—I will uh, uh, so shorten it up in—in—in his in, mid twenties. In his mid twenties, he and his uh, brother go on a vacation to the Caribbean, and while there, they get uh, to—they go to the beach. They have to hitchhike, and two attractive girls come along. Well. These guys, you know, he can he goes on to describe, he thinks, well, these, oh, two attractive girls, but they hit on them. Turns out that they were Christian girls. And girls that stuck by their guns on their belief in God and that sex, not until marriage. Okay, this sort of blew his hat in the creek a bit, so he goes on to, you know, they, they went their ways, and he went back. and he um, he, But he was just dug in on his his atheistic philosophy, that Christianity is wrong. And um, he said, my new goal in life, after meeting this Christian girl, my new goal in life was to disabuse my girlfriend of her beliefs so that we could be together without antiquated notions of God or sex, uh, standing, standing in the way. I started thinking, and he said, What good reason was there to think God exists? And what good reason was there to think atheism was true? But, of course, uh, if I was going to refute Christianity, I first needed to know what it claimed. So I picked up a Bible. Okay, now, look how this started meets this girl, he's attracted to her. this is not the first time this has happened in this <laughs> in church history that uh, God gets oh okay he's he's, he's on the quest and uh, so she's a Christian he so he's going to prove her wrong he gets a Bible and so I figured, he said I figured that uh, I figured there was at least one experiment I would carry it out. I thought if this is true then God who exists presumably cares greatly about this project of mine. So I started to pray into the air. If there is a God, then here, uh, here I am. I'm looking into this. Why don't you go ahead and reveal yourself to me? I'm open. And he says, I wasn't. But I figured that if God existed, that wouldn't stop him. So. <laughs> a week or two after my unbelieving prayer, and he goes, I've got to shorten it up. He says, a week or two after this prayer, he started developing shoulder. He was a champion uh, volleyball player in, uh, in France. He, he was thinking like, he was about 6'3", six, 6'4", six, and he found out he could vertically jump about three feet. So he became quite a, quite a star. And, but he developed problems with his shoulder. Ah, he meets his mortality. This plays into the story. This shuts him down. He goes to therapist. He goes to the doctor and said, "You just need to take some time off." So he's got time. So then he decides that he's going to. He's still thinking about this girl and her belief in God, and he's you know going through this mental um, battle with is there a God. So he decides he's going to seek out an evangelical church in Paris. He finds one and he goes. And, uh, he tries to get out of the service as fast as the church service is over. He doesn't get eye contact with anybody, but then he's just finally, he feels kind of dishonest and he wants, he wheels on his heels and goes back inside and finds the pastor and talks to him and tells him, you know, he's looking for someone to, we can bounce his thoughts off of him and he meets the pastor and the pastor meets with him and they start talking. And let me get to the juicy part here. All right. And what followed was less theatrical and more brutal. God reactivated my conscience. And he goes on to describe, he doesn't give the details of some particular sin, something bad, really bad that he did and that he had tried to cover it up and he began to feel shame. He says, I was lying in pain in my apartment, pain from the shame and shoulder. So he's got internal pain, feeling some guilt and his physical pain. I was lying in pain in my apartment near Paris when all of a sudden the quarter dropped. That is why Jesus had to die. He knew no sin. He who knew no sin became sin on my behalf, so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He took upon himself the penalty that I deserved, so that in God's justice my sins would be forgiven by grace as a gift, rather than by my righteous deeds or religious rituals. He died so that I may live. I placed my trust in Jesus and asked him to forgive me in the way Scripture promised he would. Now that everything was in the open, well, he goes on to describe. he, he goes over from Paris, he flies to New York, he's going to try to get connected with this girl, and find out they weren't, they weren't going to do well together. I mean, it, there was no future. So, okay. But uh, he then, uh, but he's back in the United States, he's a believer now, where he's in the U.S., and he goes on to describe, he says, well, this is theology, this thing. It's really interesting. He goes on and ends up getting, um, I think he gets a, gets a Ph.D. in theology. So I mean, so, I mean, so he's all the way from an atheist. Now he's studying the Bible, and he's just up to his ears and passionate about uh, theology and his faith in Jesus Christ. I just thought that was, and reading all this worldview thing, it's just so late. we don't think that this is just some... This is not some intellectual ping-pong match that God in his sovereign grace. Here were we're a couple of girls on vacation, chance meeting, and then that's it. You don't know what your own experiences, conversations, your commitment to your Christian faith in Jesus Christ, and those people out there who are locked in unbelief in their worldview systems. You say, well, how could they ever get out? You may be the one. Let's pray. Lord, would we be that one here at the holiday season as we were reminded this morning by Justin that we hear testimonies to the wonders of the Incarnation and the Atonement of Christ in the strangest places. In Walmart and Target and sandwich shops and everywhere, Lord. Oh, God, I pray that... Give us some conversations. Give us some conversations. And use us, Lord to be champions for your grace and witnessing and being ready to give a reason for the hope that's within us. In Christ's name, amen.